oftentimes we think of the idea of walking and talking with Jesus in some mystical, experiential sense. But we've been given a great gift in the Word of God. That if we want to hear the voice of God, we open His Word. It's a beautiful gift to us. If you were with us last week, you know that our text was rather uncomfortable as Jesus calls his followers and ultimately us to cut off that which causes us to sin for the sake of our soul, for the sake of those who are influenced and impacted by us. And this is the problem with preaching through a book of the Bible. You see, my style of preaching typically follows what is usually called expository preaching. And the main idea of expository preaching is that the central message of the text is the central message of the sermon, that the text controls the sermon. A lot of preaching today is the opposite of that. Rather than the text controlling the sermon, the the preacher will start with an idea or a concept that they want to get across, and then they'll piece together a message with sort of a mix of logic and supporting scripture passages to arrive at at their point. And I think there's a place for that in the teaching ministry of the church, as long as it's done carefully. And you've seen me tackle shorter sermon series that are more topical in nature, but I'm convinced that The steady diet of the Christian, the majority intake, should be preaching in which the text is controlling. This approach, preaching, forces the preacher to feed you things that you don't like. Forces us to, we might say, offer up the Brussels sprouts that you might not want to eat, but that we could argue are good for you. Bad thing about that type of preaching is that we end up in a situation like today where last week was a hard text and then the uh, the Gospel of Mark takes us into the next text for today which is equally as challenging. If I were in control of the text, I would have given you a nice little break, a nice, easy, comforting, happy-go-lucky text after talking about hell and the cost of discipleship, but God's Word doesn't give us that luxury. Mark takes us right from our theme for last week into a controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus over the topics of marriage and divorce. And so while I might be serving Brussels sprouts today, I'm hoping that they're like those Brussels sprouts from Longhorn Steakhouse. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go to Bismarck, go to Longhorn, order the Brussels sprouts. You can thank me later. What would you stand as I read our scripture text for today? From Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1, this is God's word to us. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. 
But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. God, we are grateful for your word. We confess and we believe that your word is true, even when it's hard, even when it offends us, even when it comes into conflict with our own lives and our own worldview. Lord, make us humble. Do your good work within us. We submit ourselves to you today, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider this interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus, allow me to explore several thoughts regarding the topics that Jesus presents in today's text of marriage and divorce. And the first thought that I would like to explore today is the occasion for Jesus' teaching on this topic. Look at verse 2. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? You'll notice in verse 1 that gives us the setting of this. Jesus is teaching to the crowds and there is no mention whatsoever of marriage or of divorce. The topic arises because the Pharisees are trying to put Jesus to the test. As is their habit, they're likely maybe trying to catch him off guard, trying to trip him up, trying to get him to say something blasphemous. So they bring up the issue of divorce, and their question is a pretty straightforward one. But how exactly is this a test or a trap for Jesus? Well, there are a couple of possibilities. First, they could be attempting to get Jesus to say that remarriage was not legitimate. Why would they be concerned about this? The Tetrarch, or the regional ruler at the time, was Herod Antipas. Remember the guy who ordered John the baptizer's head on a platter? Well, if you remember that story, you know that Herod had divorced his first wife in order to marry his current evil wife, and that was the controversy between Herod and John. And so it's entirely possible that the Pharisees saw what Herod did to John when John questioned the legitimacy of Herod's marriage, and they were trying to get the same thing to happen to Jesus. It was a setup. The second possibility is simply that they were trying to catch him in a situation where he was disagreeing with the law of Moses. This would have discredited him. It would have been grounds for all around him to question his legitimacy. Whatever the case, they set out to cause problems for Jesus. And they asked the question not because they're actually interested in Jesus' thoughts on the issue of divorce, but in order to test, tempt, entrap him. So that's the occasion for Jesus' teaching. Second, I want you to see the necessity of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. The necessity of allowing 
Scripture to interpret Scripture. Look at verse 3. After they ask their question to trap Jesus, he replies, What did Moses command you? Jesus points them back to the law of Moses, to what God had previously revealed about these issues. But with this statement, he also does more than that. He points us to the practice of allowing Scripture to inform our understanding of Scripture. There can be a tendency when faced with a passage of Scripture, especially one like our text today, to simply say, what do these words mean for me? That's usually our approach to reading the Scriptures, right? Our very first question is, how does this apply to my life? But there's a lot more work that has to be done to help us answer that question properly. I often use the word backdrop to help us understand this. Most of what we read in the Gospels, for example, is occurring in front of this rich, deep, historical, cultural, and religious backdrop of first century Israel and the Roman Empire. And so when we talk about Paul's words regarding, for example, communion in 1 Corinthians, we can't really understand it, at least in its fullness, without first going back to the Passover account, right? That's how communion started, Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And then we have to make sure we have a basic understanding of covenants, because what does Paul say about communion? He said, in that communion cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So we have to know something about covenants if we're going to understand what Paul is saying. And then it's critical to read about those words of Jesus' institution in the upper room with his disciples. That's what I mean about allowing scripture to interpret Scripture, recognizing that for essentially every important thought or theological question today, there is a rich history found in the account of God's Word and in the life of God's people in the Old and New Testaments that speak together to give us a more complete understanding of these issues. Jesus doesn't answer the question that's posed to him from his first century perspective. But he takes them back to the law of Moses to get the depth of the issue that's in front of them. If you're looking for further reading, I'd encourage you to check out Deuteronomy chapter 24. That gives us some of the history of this controversy. Well, the third thought that I want to share with you today is that it's helpful to recognize the cultural debates that were fueling this controversy. There were two primary schools of thought that existed among Jewish rabbis in the first century. The Shammai and the Hillel. You don't need to know that. There won't be a quiz. But they were in very different places regarding divorce. They saw God and the scriptures and the life of the people of God from very different perspectives. The Shammai held and believed that the only justification for divorce was infidelity. No other excuse, no other cause was allowable. On the other side of the issue was the Hillel position, which read Deuteronomy 24 in a way, and if you read Deuteronomy 24, you'll understand, in a way that said that basically anything that a woman did that embarrassed or annoyed her husband was grounds for divorce. So essentially any cause might be sufficient if it's worded the right way. And so Jewish teaching 
was split between these two majority positions or somewhere in between. It seems from the text that the majority position for these Pharisees was somewhere closer to the Hillel side. That so long as there was a reasonably argued position, a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. So the cultural background is helpful. And there's another cultural element to this discussion that I think is helpful as well. Historically in Judaism, marriage was not understood or was not seen or viewed as two persons fundamentally equal before God coming together. Marriage was utility. It was the way by which a male-dominated culture advanced bloodlines, ensuring ample heirs in order to establish a meaningful legacy for the man. Marriage wasn't, generally speaking, seen as this beautiful gift from the Lord, but instead as a means to an end. This is evidenced, of course, by the strong recurrence in the Old Testament of infertility stories. Consider Abraham and Sarah. And it's easy for us to read these words of Jesus and forget all of that backdrop, all of that context, to forget how the culture viewed the institution of marriage. It's the same thing that happens today when you read, for example, Revolutionary Era or Civil War Era writing on issues of race. What we might read today as being backward or even racist on the part of some of our founding fathers, for example, was actually countercultural and revolutionary in their context. Their words were often pushing the envelope. Jesus' words in this text are not to be heard in sort of a draconian or backward way, but instead as beautiful countercultural teaching that revolutionized marriage from a male-dominated institution into this entity, as Jesus says, in which a man and a woman come together and are co-equals, co-heirs, both called to lifelong love and submission and sacrifice. Verse 11 perhaps makes this most clear. This was very countercultural, that if a man divorces his wife, we can presume in a way that this isn't for a reason covered by the exceptions that we'll deal with later, but that if a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, he is an adulterer. This was countercultural. Remember, we have the backdrop of the man basically being able to justify for any reason that he could reasonably articulate justification for a divorce. So Jesus' words here are countercultural. This assumes that the woman is not property like many in the ancient world would have thought, that the woman doesn't exist solely for the purposes of the man, but that she is her own person. That she doesn't have standing and rights solely because they're granted by her father or her husband, but because she is an image bearer. This is stuff we take for granted. But it shows how countercultural, how revolutionary Jesus' teaching was. All of that backdrop, that context is so important. Next, I want you to notice the difference in focus between Jesus and the Pharisees. 
the entire focus of the Pharisees, because they're trying to entrap Jesus, is on how much can we get away with? What's allowable? What are the limits? How much can we lawfully get away with? They're focused on trying to trip him up or on trying to prove that he has this low view of God's law when in fact it's they themselves who have a low view of God's law. They think that they've figured it out and their entire focus is on what are the boundaries? What are the limits? Where are the lines? But Jesus' focus is on the heart of God. What is God's heart for marriage? What is God's heart for people? Jesus never addresses this issue from a how much does God allow or what are the loopholes perspective. This is the perpetual failing of the Pharisees. They're so worried about where the lines are at and making sure that everyone else is obeying and coloring inside the lines that they continually miss the heart of God. And I'd argue that this isn't just limited to the Pharisees, but many Christians fall into this as well. Some are focusing on the lines because they, they want to see how much they can get away with. Others focus on the lines because they want to take pride in their own obedience. And then others spend their entire lives staring at the lines, figuring out the boundaries and the loopholes so they can make sure that everyone else knows how they're supposed to behave. This is exactly what we saw when the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the law of God because he healed on the Sabbath. So focused on the lines, on the rules, that they missed entirely the heart of God. Jesus is focused on God's grand design for marriage, not on how many reasons we can dream up to set it aside. Well, next I want us to see the holy centrality of marriage to God's design for humanity. Look at verses 6 through 9. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. University of Southern California conducted a study about 15 years ago in which they found this significant identifiable link between marriage and human happiness. More recently, there's a multi-university research study that found that not only is marriage the place where peak human happiness exists or most readily occurs, but that the time frame for peak human happiness is somewhere after 20 years into marriage. And this shouldn't be surprising for us. God has created the marriage relationship to be that place where human life flourishes. Now, don't get me wrong. None of this means that there isn't happiness to be found in singleness. We can all think of a number of singles who are far more happy than some other married folks that we know. And we could argue over whether people who aren't married are statistically more sad because they aren't married or because society tells them that they should be sad about that. But one thing that is unquestioned in the research is that everything else being equal, marriage does 
greatly improve your chances of self-identifying as happy. Jesus appeals to the created order. He says, at the beginning of creation, God has established this relationship in which he says humanity has the best chance at flourishing. Jesus isn't assigning value here. He's not saying that married people are more valuable or more important. The church has done that over the years at times, but that's not at all what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you are single today, you're in probably the best of company alongside Jesus and the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul argues that it's far better to remain single if you have the maturity and the self-control to do so. You're not encumbered by the responsibility or the pressures of a family and a marriage. You're able to commit your life to eternal things. It's honorable. It should be elevated, I think Scripture teaches, as a calling and as a gift. Nonetheless, Scripture sets up marriage between a man and a woman as the fundamental relationship upon which humanity is built. But there's another thing that I think is powerful when we consider God's design for human relationships. Marriage is the setting for our sanctification. Sanctification is that daily work of the Holy Spirit showing us our sin, leading us to the cross, making us more like Christ. And a marriage relationship is a place where this happens at a faster rate than anywhere else. If you need someone to point out your sin, get married, right? Two individuals coming together with all of their baggage, all of their quirks, all of their assumptions is a perfect setting for sanctification. For me to come face to face with my sin, my need for a savior, in the context of marriage, you recognize your own selfishness, your own self-worship. It's been said that God's primary intent for marriage isn't your happiness, but your holiness. Marriage is a holy institution through which humans thrive and through which we grow and are sanctified. Okay, a quick review, because I know I've hit a number of points here. We've seen the occasion for Jesus' teaching, the necessity of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, the cultural debates fueling the discussion, the difference between Jesus' focus and the focus of the Pharisees, and then the centrality of marriage to God's design for humanity. Now, I want you to see the serious nature of the covenant. Look at verses 11 and 12. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Jesus is anything but passive and permissive when it comes to these topics. You notice that Mark's account doesn't quote Jesus giving any wiggle room, any exceptions. And so again, we have to come back to the necessity of allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. We know that elsewhere, when we look at the totality of what Scripture teaches on the topic, that there are two exceptions that are often understood to be legitimate grounds for divorce. One is adultery, found in Matthew 19, and the other is desertion or abandonment, as found in 1 Corinthians 7. And we could 
debate and have conversations about what exactly those things mean. But we can assume that those exceptions are left out of Mark's gospel intentionally. Jesus is conveying a very high and holy view of the institution of marriage. Jesus' plain and clear teaching is that divorce is tearing apart something that cannot actually be torn apart. Jesus refuses to take the bait and to think about marriage in any setting other than as God intentionally designed it. Anything other than that is human failure and sin. You see, Scripture presents marriage as an entirely new creature being created. Two individuals coming together to form something entirely new. Wedding ceremonies often try to to illustrate this point through some sort of unity feature. They all fall short on some level, whether it's the unity candle or the, the unity sand in which different colors of sand are poured together into a vase to intermix to create some kaleidoscope of colors, and that's a helpful picture. But it is certainly conceivable that even those grains of sand could be separated. You see, marriage as designed by God is not just two separate pieces of cloth that are stitched together into one garment. That is not the picture. Jesus says that marriage is a new creature, one flesh. And so there's no simple procedure by which that can be undone. I often say uh, in counseling, it will never rip apart at the seams. It never separates cleanly. To divorce, according to Jesus, is to rip flesh into two parts. Jesus' teaching on divorce is hard. Remember last week I referenced the cuddly Jesus, the Jesus holding babies and petting kittens? It's not the Jesus that we see in our text. We have to understand that in the eyes of God, marriage is something far bigger than just one individual husband and one individual wife coming together. Marriage is a picture in the scriptures. But what is it a picture of? Think back in your memory what you know about the scriptures. What is marriage a picture of? It's a picture of God's relationship with his people. His church. This is language that we find in both the Old and New Testaments. Speaking of God's relationship with Israel in Isaiah chapter 54, we read this. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. For the Lord has called you like a wife. But the imagery gets real in Jeremiah. When God accuses his bride Israel of committing adultery, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 1 says, But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers, and you're now returning to me? This imagery continues into the New Testament, perhaps most beautifully in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul uses instructions for mutual love and commitment and sacrifice within marriage to ultimately point us to the goal, the purpose, that we would see Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 
chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. This is a fascinating passage. Paul quotes Jesus' words from our text for today. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then listen to how Paul speaks of these words of Jesus. So Paul quotes Jesus from our text for today, and then listen to what Paul says about these words. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying, I am telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. So God designed marriage not just to be a place where people can flourish, not just to be a framework for a healthy society, not just to be a sanctifying relationship, but to be a grand picture of God's relationship with us. Christ, the groom, and his church, the bride. Jesus' purpose in this passage is not to bury those with a history of divorce under a mountain of guilt. If you're listening today and you have divorce in your past, I want you to hear this. That the recurring message of Scripture is that the true and better groom sacrificed himself to redeem the wayward bride. Redemption and forgiveness are yours in Jesus Christ for all who are living in repentance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin is forgiven. Those of you considering divorce, listen to the tone with which Jesus speaks of this decision. Jesus gives grace for today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is present with you today, whatever your circumstances? Do you believe that Jesus will see you through even the most difficult of relationships? It's true. This text should never be used to guilt the abused into enduring further abuse. Never. This text should never be used to enslave oneself despite the unfaithfulness of a spouse. Never. These words are not intended to guilt, but intended to elevate the place of marriage, that we might see it as God sees it. Jesus lifts before us this incredibly high view of marriage, and that view should push all of us to the cross, because none of us have lived up to that. Whether you've been married 50 years or have failed marriage in your past, we all go to the cross because we've all wandered from the one true groom. Jesus came to save Sinners. Sinners who have never married. Sinners who have relatively healthy marriages. Sinners currently in the midst of a dysfunctional marriage. And sinners with divorce in their past. Jesus had a high view of marriage. And so do we. We work to strengthen marriages. We fight for healthy marriages. We don't waver in our commitment that marriage is the relationship through which the Holy Spirit will sanctify us. And we know that sanctification is not always enjoyable. It's rarely a fun process. And we make provision. Just like Moses made provision 
because of the hard-heartedness of the Israelites. We make provision because our world is full of hard-hearted sinners. I'm one, you're one, and we don't treat divorce as the unpardonable sin. We rest, all of us, everyone, we rest on the grace of God, on the forgiveness for sin that was secured by Christ. We go to the foot of the cross, we find mercy, whatever our story, whatever our history. Jesus doesn't waver in his high view of marriage. And that should be taken seriously. But he also doesn't heap guilt upon you today. He calls you to the cross. He bids you to come. Find the mercy of Christ at the foot of the cross today. Rest in his grace to you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see marriage as you see marriage. Give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Lord, forgive us for the times that we've adopted the view of our world when it comes to this holy institution. We submit ourselves to the authority of your word. We place ourselves underneath your word today. We confess that your word is true even when it hurts, even when we don't like it, even when it's countercultural. Lord, I pray that you would protect marriages within this church family from the attack of the evil one. Turn the hearts of husbands to their wives and wives to their husbands. Lord, we pray for those among us with a history of divorce. Lord, bring forgiveness and healing and peace to each situation. May they find and know the assurance of your forgiveness at the cross. God, we love you. We're grateful that you sent your son to die for sinners, for married sinners and single sinners and divorced sinners. May we all find our identity. May we all find our hope in your forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.